The scripture reading this morning is from Psalms 89, 1-8. through I'll be reading in French, and the English translation will be on the screen for you to follow. Je veux chanter à jamais la bonté de l'Éternel et proclamer d'âge en âge sa fidélité. En effet, je peux le dire, ta bonté est établie pour l'éternité. Dans les cieux, tu as ancré ta fidélité. Tu as déclaré, j'ai contracté une alliance avec mon élu, à David, mon serviteur. J'ai fait un serment. J'affermi ta descendance pour l'éternité et j'établira ton trône au siècle des siècles. Ô éternel, les cieux chantent tes prodiges. L'assemblée des saints célèbre ta fidélité, qui dans les nuits est égale à l'éternité, qui est comparable à l'éternel parmi les êtres célestes. Car c'est un Dieu redoutable au conseil des saints. Il est grand, impressionnant, au-dessus au de tout ce qui l'entoure. Le, qui, ô l'éternel, ô Dieu des âmes célestes, qui est puissant comme toi Qui, ô l'éternel, ta fidélité rayonne tout autour de toi This is God's word. Please be Kids can uh, be dismissed to Children's Church. It's up to second grade. Um, I'm Jason Anderson. I'm the pastoral resident here. If I haven't met you, hello. Let's turn our attention now to Psalm 89. I Googled yesterday, and it's the third longest psalm, but hopefully this is not the third longest sermon ever. We will see. Um... I don't know about you, if you have been in a season looking for a job, applying and interviewing, it can be a disheartening process. I know I've talked to some of you at church here, and it's been a case, season of your lives where it's like, oh, you interview, you look for a job, and you're still looking. I, for one, haven't had much experience with that, but sort of am in a season of that right now where it's takes time to find a job and I don't know if I'm in middle age or old age or half age or third age whatever I am right it can be it can be a disheartening time and it can actually make you feel empty when you get turned down you can wonder now I'm thinking of Psalm 89 with the psalmist where where's your covenant love for me God when it, where's your faithfulness is it going to show up ever now, that's just one illustration from my life. I don't 100% feel that way, but I know it can feel that way. It feels like in other areas of our lives, too, that we can be grasping at thin air. Right? You, maybe you felt this as a couple if you're hoping to have a kid and somehow it's not working out. It's difficult. Where's your love, God? Maybe you have a chronic disease. Say, so where's your love, God? Or when you have a close family member or friend, reject the message of the gospel. Say, so where's your love, God? This is, again and again, it's easy for us to go here. Where is your love is, I think, is what I put the title for this sermon. Our psalm is one of many that 
that's written in the Psalms that leads us through times of difficulty. That, that we sing, we ought to sing when we walk through trying times. Last week, Psalm, Psalm 88 is one of them. It's a fitting way to just lament. And like the psalm ends last week, my, my companions have become darkness, or darkness is my only friend. Or you think of Al's sermon two weeks ago, I think, when he mentioned Israel's mortal enemies. Imagine singing about the, th the person that hates you the most and wants your worst, and then God saying, he might be your, your friend and your fellow worshiper of me. Right? Egypt, Babylon, the people who slaughtered you are going to become your friends and you're going to worship with them. Right? There's all these psalms that lead us to reframe how we see the whole world as we go through suffering and difficulties. And this morning, Psalm 89, it's a, it's a variation on a theme. And my hope is as we go through just the themes of the psalm that we're reminded of this point that the blessed life is, isn't some, simply one of ease and happiness and all these different things, but instead it's resting on God's promises in difficult times. So that's hopefully the theme that we're going to come across over and over again this morning. Let's pray as we dig into it a little. Our Father, we... We are in awe of who you are. You are God who have shown your steadfast love and faithfulness to us. You sent your son to die for us we can so that we can experience new life. We thank you that we can live, live in this age with hope even, even through times of suffering. We pray right now as we go through Psalm 89 that you would, by your Spirit, inspire us to walk in newness of life, in, in hope, not in despair. And yet with the reality of lamenting over the difficulty and the sin and the curse and death that spread throughout this world, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The aim of this sermon, the aim of, I think, Psalm 89, is that we cling to the covenant love of God as we live in our time on this earth. We'll see this through three, you could almost say four movements in the psalm. So we're not going to go through every verse because this is a very long psalm, but we're going to see these movements. So first in verses 1 to 4, we, we see and we're going to consider God's foundational covenant love for us. We saw that in our call to worship this morning. We're going to see that in the first four verses of the psalm. And then we, we're going to turn and we'll, we see beginning in verse 5 all the way to 37, God's covenant love to Israel and then specifically to David says, look at how God has committed so much to David in his love. And then the psalmist meditates, meditating on God's covenant love. He turns in the third movement to the psalm, starting in verse 38. And he says, wait, 
He looks around him and he says, wait, your love is nowhere to be found. The rest of the psalm says, where is, is essentially asking the question, where is your love? Where is your faithfulness? I think this is a, is a wonderful process for us as well. Remembering God's love, remembering God's specific love to us, and then considering the question, where is your steadfast love? Now there's an answer to that, I think, and I, we're going to get to that this morning, um, but we'll get there when we get there, and not before. So, Psalm 89 begins where many happy psalms seem to begin. I'm going to sing your steadfast love. I want to sing of it. It's great. You go into the 90s, there's a lot of happy psalms that talk about God's love. But this, it's not a happy psalm. Like I said, it asks the question, where's your love? Verse 49, by the way, is, is where you could see that. And by the way, 52 is really, a, I would call it an, an extra addition because at the end of every book of the Psalms, you have this blessing. So there's a blessing at the end of the Psalm, but it's sort of for all of book three. It's not just for the Psalm in particular. That's a side note. So mostly the psalm, is, 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 it doesn't end on the most happy note. It doesn't end with resolution, if you're thinking in a musical way. Instead, there's this dissonance. And you know, that's, that's okay, because in a lot of life, there's dissonance. The resolution is not going to be here and now. So Psalm 89 guides us in time of difficulty. It guides us when we, we are struggling and suffering. What should we do when we struggle? Well, here he, he begins us in a different spot than verse 88, but to find a great spot, we begin with considering God's covenant love. We begin with saying, I'm going to sing of God's love for me, for us. This psalm, it's, it's chock full of teaching that we ought to cling to God's love, His covenant love. This word in the NIV, I think it's just love. In the ESV that I have here, it's a steadfast love. I'm calling it covenant love, committed love, was what my professor in, high, in college said. This is, this is a special kind of love. Now, we see that Psalm 89 really wants us to focus on this. If you look through the psalm, this happens seven times. The word steadfast love, the word love. If you want to know the Hebrew, people talk about it. It's chesed, chesed. And there's a parallel word with it every time. Faithfulness, which I can't remember. It's probably, I think it's emunah. That's the less common one. So chesed and emunah. That's a, that happens seven times throughout the whole of the psalm. Now seven is an important number for the Hebrew consciousness. It's like us thinking of 666. When we think 666, we're like, bad, because of the Bible, right? Mara weighed herself, my oldest, and at one point it was 66.6. Right? We have this consciousness in our minds. That's a, it's a funny number. Well, the Hebrews had a funny number in seven. 
It wasn't a negative connotation. No, instead it was this, this idea of perfection. So as soon as the person singing this psalm, as they memorize it and they sing it again and again and again, they start to realize, I say this word seven times. Oh, this is the idea of perfection. God's love and faithfulness, it's the, this is the complete deal. It's the whole package. And now, in reading the psalm, not only do we have these words, steadfast love and faithfulness seven times, parallel to those two words, we have the word covenant. We just talked about covenant a little bit. This is, I think, where we need to do a little bit of work. What is a covenant? It's easy for us to get this wrong. It, it's easy for us to think that covenant is just a contract. Covenant is just a commitment. So you think of, you know, you go to your Costco and you get a card because you paid money. That's a contract of some sort or another. Or you pay money for your insurance and then somebody hits you and you have a contract that the insurance is going to figure out the million dollars that it's going to take to fix your thing. Right? That's, that's not what a covenant is. And we have to get away from understanding covenant that way. Covenant is a legal thing between in a relationship. I think that's, that's a fine way to begin for us. So in a marriage, there's a relationship. It's not just a willy-nilly, ah, off again, on again kind of thing. That's, maybe you can call that dating. But once you're married, you're stuck together legally. There's a legal bindingness to it. And as Christians, it's also we talk about it before God. But it's more than that, isn't it? Right? In a, in a secular understanding of marriage even sometimes, it's not, a relation, it's not first a relationship. It's almost a contract first. People get prenuptial agreements to plan out, well, when this contract fails, then we've got to make sure how our money works. I don't actually know what a prenuptial is. But I'm guessing... We don't have one of those. But I think it's something like that, right? So it, it displays the world's understanding of, of a marriage relationship. It's just a contractual thing for a bit. And even with friendships, this is how we can get canceled, isn't it? In the world around us, it's easy for us to break a social contract and there's no forbearance, there's no love, there's no forgiveness. As soon as you cross a line, and the line is different in different societies, in different places, you're canceled. So we have to understand, contractual relationships are all around us, and we're very easily lean into it as if that's how relationships ought to be. So even in a marriage, even in a Christian marriage, we can we can accidentally fall into this contractual way of marriage. When you have a brand new baby, what happens? Well, we got to count how many diapers the guy changes so that he's keeping up his part of the deal. Because she, the wife, is not sleeping as much if she has to change all the poopy diapers. Right? 
Or you can think of making dinner. I make three and a half days of dinner. You make three and a half days of dinner. And if you miss a day, then you got to make it up. Or I'll hold it against you. See, this is not a covenantal understanding of marriage. And I think if we do that, we're setting our marriages up for failure. There's no way for a marriage to run like that. Christian marriage, instead, that covenantal idea of marriage is one of a whole self-giving kind. It's not an exchange of tasks and hours. In Scripture, then, we, we, have, to, we have to find the heart of covenantal language. It's different in so many ways. There's going to be obligations to covenant. Right? We just heard Josiah read a huge long list of things you ought to do because you covenanted to be a member of this church. But it ought not to be a burdensome thing. It ought to be out of this overabundant self-giving. Why? Because our covenantal relationships reflects God's covenantal relationship. And what, what is that? In God's covenantal relationship, He's always the one who initiates. He's always the one who pursues. He's always the one who gives over abundantly, more than we ever could ask or imagine. Ultimately, to the point of sacrificial giving. When He gave His Son to die for us. So Christ didn't take his position to be taken advantage of. Instead, he submitted him. He, he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. That is the image of covenant love. God's covenant love for his people. So, yeah, even though covenant relationships, there's this legal idea behind it between parent and child, between husband and wife. There's this truth, at least for us Christians, that it, it flows out of God's committed love. This relational, self-giving, super-duper, overabundant love. So, in my relationship to my wife, Amy, I'm free to love my wife overabundantly. Because I'm not bound in this tit-for-tat relationship. So, and Amy, likewise, is freed to fulfill her covenant married role too because she's freed by God's eternal, super-duper, overabundant love to be my loving wife. The point is that God's covenant love for His people is foundational for the whole rest of how we live our lives. It gives us freedom to breathe when we're stuck in the stifling way of life. As we'll see later in the psalm. So Ethan, the Ezraite, super, super smart guy. He, I think he's called a wise guy in not a bad way. He calls us to sing God, of God's covenant love first. Okay, you're stuck in trial. Sing, remember God's covenant love for you? Remember how overabundant and flowing it is for you. It's because God is committed to you in His love that you can walk through these trials. 
Now, verses 5 and on give us this historical account of how God has worked in the past. He recounts the history of God's work with Israel. So verses 5 to 9, I think he says, look, remember God and creation? Praise God for how he made us. Praise God for how he made all the world. Rejoice in that. Who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord. It's all going to sing and give glory to you. And then he turns to, the, to more recent history for Israel. Rahab, who's Egypt, you crushed. Sure, he was a great monster. But he's nothing to Yahweh. He had all these, thinking of Egypt, he had all these chariots. He, he made you a slave, and yet what? He's nothing. God, God can crush him, just like anything else in the world. Okay, and then what, what does he do? He says, the north and the south, you created them. I think this is the perspective of the land of Israel itself. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. This is the psalmist drawing our, our attention to that land again. Tabor and Hermon are mountains in the lush north of Israel where water flow, falls flow and Tabor is in the center of this fertile valley where Israel can produce grain and sustenance. All the rest, most of Israel is a bunch of mountains, but that valley of Jezreel is just a flat plain of where you can grow so much grain for the people. Right? Just look at all that. These places that provide so much overabundantly, they praise your name joyously. Just think of, the wa think of a waterfall gurgling and burbling and you just think, ah, yeah. That's, 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 that, that waterfall is praising God's name. In His committed love, Yahweh created Yahweh committed himself to his people. He delivered them out of Egypt. He brought them into the land and gave them a place. Praise the Lord. And doesn't he do the same for us? He, he brought us out of the darkness of our sin into his marvelous light. He gave us a place to worship with the church, this organized church here, that organized church where you live. The psalmist shows how God has acted in the past so that we would remember it today in our trials. It's easy, I know, when a trial comes for you to be like, so fixated on the now. Become self-destructed, self-centered machines. We, we think, oh, I did this wrong, I did that wrong. Oh, these people over here, that person over there, nobody helps me. <laughs> Solomon says, yeah, no, no, don't, don't talk about that. Remember what God did in the past. It's glorious. Look at the waterfall. It's praising God's name. Look at the mountains. Hey, the only place you're ever going to see snow? <laughs> Herman, right there. I mean, snow is not magic. Snow is magical, but imagine somebody who saw snow maybe once a year. Herman, the place of snow. The only ski resort in Israel nowadays. It's glorious. Even if you're having trouble singing, you can see the heavens. They're going to praise. 
Mount Tabor and Hermon. They're going to sing out loud, help you out. Even the people of God are going to give festal shout. Why? God's our glory. God's our only glory. You don't need the attention of others when God is our glory, when He's our joy. I mean, that's hard to say. It's hard to know in the thick of it, but it's true. He's our horn. I love the idea of horn, and I always have to remind myself of what a horn is. A horn is like a bull mauling somebody. Not, yeah, there was something in the news in Ottertail County, but somebody died from a bull mauling. But, right, a horn is crazy of a bull. Have you seen a bull? Yahweh's horn is strong in the presence of any difficulty. Notice again and again, we're being reminded of who God is. We haven't come to our situation yet. We haven't come to Israel's situation yet. We have to remember who God is, the Holy One of Israel. We have to remember what He has committed to us. And in verse 19, He turns not just to more the broader picture, but the specific picture of how God has committed Himself to David. Who is David? Well, David was a ruddy young boy who God chose to be king. After Saul had rejected God's ways, there's this boy out shepherding who Samuel anoints to be king of Israel. And then later on, he promises to David, I'm going to make your throne last forever. If covenant love and faithfulness are some of the main words, if the word covenant is repeated quite a few times, the last word that matters in this psalm is forever or eternal. We saw it in verse 1 and 2, and we're getting to think about it now as especially we think of David and God's covenant with David. It was supposed to be eternal. And in the context of the psalm, we don't know exactly when in the life of Israel it was written, but we do know it was in a time when it felt like God was not keeping that covenant. God, you said it would be forever, and it doesn't look like that. How are you going to keep that promise? Now, I'm sure David's family, as they considered that promise, they thought, God's going to make me strong. God's going to keep us going. God's going to keep that throne going forever and ever. But then, looking around them, even during David's lifetime, it's hard to believe that sometimes. Look at verse 22 even. It says, The enemy shall not outwit him. For David and his immediate descendants, it would have felt like the enemy was outwitting them pretty commonly. I've been reading 2 Samuel, and for the second half of David's life, every single step of the way, it feels like the enemy is about to outwit David. 
the king, the anointed king. And then in two generations, not only was it David, but it was his descendants. It was the kingdom fell apart. There's a northern and southern kingdom. It disintegrated eventually so that there was nobody on the throne. That's what Babylon did. They destroyed the kingdom completely. How is God going to keep a descendant of David on the throne forever? It doesn't look that way. Look at verse 38. But now you've cast off and rejected. You're full of wrath against your anointed. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. You've defiled his crown in the dust. You've breached all his walls. Can, it, can we feel as though God has rejected us similarly in difficulties of life when our best friends abandoned us? When our intimate relations are empty, relationships are empty, can we feel as though he has abandoned us? It's really easy for us to turn this way, just like the psalmist. He, he says it directly to God, and he says, you know what, all Israel can sing this song with us. Listen to verses 38 and 48, 248 now. But you have rejected, you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one. You've renounced the covenant with your servant and have defiled his crown in the dust. You have broken through all his walls and reduced his stronghold to ruin. All who have passed by have plundered him. He's become the scorn of his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his foes. You've made all his enemies rejoice. Indeed, you've turned back the edge of his sword and have not supported him in battle. You've put an end to his splendor and cast his throne in the ground. You've cut short the days of his youth. You've covered him with a mantle of shame. How long, O oh Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how fleeting is my life. For what futility you have created all humanity. Who can live and not see death? Or who can escape the power of the grave? We might say, am I a fool to lean on the everlasting arms? Summing up those verses. How long do I have to wait to see everything made right? to see your promise fulfilled. We wonder with verse 49, where's your steadfast love? I'm not sure it's the most happy answer. It might not feel like much of a resolution, but after having considered God's love, the initial answer is that we all plead with God to, to remember, verse 50, he just, what does he do? He says, remember us, God. Remember what you've committed to. Now, I think one thing we have to do is turn the tables and remember that this was written before Christ. For those of us in this New Testament age, 
We might also proclaim, after we've sung and pleaded with the Lord to remember, we can also say, He has remembered. Not only should we cling to the truth that God's covenantally committed to His people, to us, but He's remembered every minute detail of His commitment and He has been fulfilling them and He has fulfilled them in Christ. He's not forgotten or, or said to Himself, you know what, there's a lot of stuff written in the Old Testament that says i got to fulfill it this way and that way and the other way. I don't know if I can do it. No, that's not who God is. That's not a God at all. He said something, His Word will be established and accomplished. He'll keep every little thing He has said. Every little, every big prophecy, every promise He's going to keep. So verse 22, it, it was false. It felt false that uh, the enemy shall not outwit him. That was saying, you know what? The enemy is not going to outwit David. That was, that was what we felt your promise was. And for David, maybe he was outwitted. But you know what God said? You know what? I'm going to keep that. Make sure that's, that everyone knows that that's true. Although David may have been outwitted, although his descendants, even Josiah, might have been outwitted in Christ, Christ was not outwitted. He kept that prophetic word in this psalm of lamentation. The enemy did not outwit the one, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the descendant of David. It was Jesus beyond, who beyond human comprehension, though he was God, became man. And he did the unthinkable, something the enemy couldn't have hardly thought of. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. When the enemy tempted him this way, that way, and the other way, in the desert and throughout the Gospels, Christ overcame. Paul reminds us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, everyone cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentile so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Christ was not outwitted. Christ overcame so that he could eternally sit on that throne. The point is that one of the essential truths about who God is is that he keeps his word. He keeps even the smallest details and fulfills it in a most overabundant way. And if he keeps his word, we should remember in our trials, God will not leave us. He will not forsake us. And in the most trying times of life, in the most joyous times of life, we cannot forget to cling to this. His covenantal love and faithfulness shown to us by Christ, especially who died on the cross, who rose again. But the question I think that's important for us 
than to ask is, how do we join in on this covenant? For Israel, they were a part of the covenant by birth and by circumcision. That's not the case for us today. I was not born, as far as I know, with Jewish heritage. You can ask my mom. She's here today, but I don't think so. Maybe some long-lost Norwegian you know, royalty that was once from the lost tribes of Israel, probably. I think. The, but that's not actually the case. That doesn't matter. That's not how a person joins into the Christian to become to the, the new covenant in Christ. To become a Christian is, is to have God covenantally committed to us. And we join in that covenantal relationship by putting our faith in Christ. Believe in Jesus who died and rose again for you. For His own. We act out this truth that God died for us in Christ. We cling to this through the thick and thin. God has shown us His steadfast love, especially in giving His life for us. Specifically in giving His life for us. And as we remember what Christ did in the past, we anticipate our future with Him. Well, what is the promise you might ask, for us to cling to. It's not that we're going to have a land. God didn't promise St. Paul to Christians. No. Instead, those who put their faith in Christ, we anticipate a day when Christ will come again and He brings us up out of the grave to new life, eternal life. We just drove past the cemetery today. We always drive past the cemetery, hillside and the other one. And the girls were asking, well, what are the flowers for? Well, I, I don't know. People are remembering those who have gone before. But as Christians, one of the things we do is we bury those people who have passed away in the grave in hope. And the flowers, I think, can represent that hope. Flowers come out of the ground dead and they're alive and become beautiful. They anticipate the resurrection that Christ will give to His own to live eternally in His city with Him forever. So for the, mo for the most part, for most of us, it's going to get harder. Aging isn't actually all that easy. I saw in whatever Twitter's called now today. I don't know what you call it. Sorry, I'm not up to date with these things. Somebody said, oh, I don't know. Twitter tells me to look at random things that don't make any sense, but I did anyways, and I have an illustration for you. So somebody went to the beaches of the Aegean and said, this is the life. Oh yeah, this is great. I didn't see the picture because I don't know if there was a picture. You might visit the beaches of Greece, which I guess are beautiful, according to this person, but then you had to come home. Not, I love, we live in Minneapolis, I love Minneapolis, but it's not, I guess, the beaches of Greece. Someday you'll have to get your joints replaced. Soon enough, your loved ones will pass away. 
You might get dementia. This is the psalm for you. But for those who are in Christ in those simple life stages that we come through, I don't know if those are the four life stages, going to Greece, getting your joints replaced and getting dementia, but you can think of life that way. <laughs> what do we do in those times? We cling to the truth that God is forever faithful and he's not going let to let one word get forgotten. God didn't forget his promise to David, even though it felt like it a lot of times. And he's not going to forget your, his promise to you or to me.